important for us to be together and like find these communities and these networks mm -hmm. before this place becomes really impossibly hard for us to navigate. Yeah. And I literally was like, there's this thing called the American dream. <laughs> I'm like fresh right. out coming from the UK. Right, yeah. This is what you get sold. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Detroit public schools and where our kids are being yeah. educated, where are the people coming in to work to Amazon going to send their kids? Are they going to send them to Detroit public schools? <laughs> <laughs> right? And now, if they had to, yeah. that could maybe change the game. Right, but they're not going to. But they're to not going to. Because they have the option back. Because so you're going to continue to yeah. reinforce. The, the segregation of resources. Once again, everybody, to another episode of Mr. Hankins Opus. I am James Hankins, a.k.a. Mr. Hankins, a.k.a. Jimmy Appleseed on Twitter. I am sitting across from a friend of mine, uh, one of the first friends I've made up here, somebody who, if she has a question in class, that professor better be ready to answer that question <laughs> the way it needs to be answered. Libby, how are you doing? <laughs> what an introduction. The truth is the truth, Libby. I appreciate it. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I want to know what's good. What is good? What's positive right now? Yo, so uh, February 2nd today, so February 1st yesterday, beginning of Black History Month. Yeah. And I was just pleasantly surprised by the overwhelming amount of recognition, um, not only for the event in general, mm -hmm. although we can pass out that it shouldn't just be a month, but the recognition of black women as needing to be no longer silenced, no longer <laughs> invisible, and being projected. The Google Doodle was like, like specifically yeah. of a black woman, um, and that to me speaks of change. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to see that more than anything. I, I was in a classroom the other day observing somebody, and I noticed that on the walls, instead of having just the president, is a history class, right. having the presence of the United States listed. Now, yeah. they did, I'll t get to that in a second, but having the president of the United States listed, they had posters and pictures of people of color. Women in history, women yep. of color in history. So the idea was that when these students walk into the classroom, they see something that represents yep. them. And uh, I thought that was really cool. And by the way, with the presidents, they had under presidents who were slave owners. They had slave owner under president. Under no the way. Yeah, it was it was pretty That's pretty progressive. Incredible. Then. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool. So Libby, you are somebody who is not going to parse any words, and <laughs> I want to know what the genesis of that was. So where are you from? Talk to me about where you're from. Talk to me about what you did, where you got here, mm -hmm. all that experience. So I was born and raised in London, England, um, in North London, uh, which is important because there's a there's a soccer team rivalry. So it's really important <laughs> okay. to make it known okay. that there's like a North London situation gotcha, going gotcha, on. Gotcha. Um, Arsenal is the team in case it matters. It does. Um, <laughs> and my parents are American, so they came to the UK um, for their education well, for my father and my mother followed. Um, and my sister and I grew up in the UK, but we grew up kind of leading this double life. So we would always celebrate like 4th of July, mm -hmm. but in the UK. And then we would come to America 
And everyone would say, like, oh, look, there's cute little British girls. <laughs> and we'd be like, but we're American. <laughs> um, so a little strange. Yeah. Um, I did my K through 12 schooling there. Mm-hmm. And then always knew I was going to come to college in America. The British system is really antiquated. And you have to decide when you're, like, 16 yeah. what subject you want to study. And I was like, well, I don't know who my favorite boy band is. So why, do I'm gonna, why am I going to pick who, a subject? Who would you pick as your favorite boy oh, band? Oh, God, that's really hard. Is it, is it, is it the toughest question? No, it's, like, have? honestly really difficult. Yeah. There's like different pieces of my life. Yeah, right. The different right. boy, band. like there was a Blink One Eight Two phase. Oh, really? Like a deep, yeah. deep Blink One Eight Two phase. But then there was also a Backstreet Boys phase, and those two don't mix. I, they're dope. They're very different. But they're equally important. I would I would argue that the Backstreet Boys are the better group they, they, as a team. They, and and as, were, a performance, as a performance, as a performance, they were better. Yes, but I think Blink One Eight Two has these anthems that defined like really key moments of struggle in my childhood. <laughs> that I would be like, okay, just like listen to the song and it'll all be fine, and like things like that. Right. But I have seen the Backstreet Boys in concert though. Yeah, are they good? Were as they an good? older human, <laughs> were they good? Uh, they were incredible. It was okay. at the Forum in LA. It was amazing. Well, fantastic. They were really good. Okay. Um. So that they, just the idea that I had to decide a subject seemed arbitrary, and it, I, I was committed to any one thing um unlike the american system where you go and you fill it out for a couple of years and then you pick a major and all the rest of it so i went to skidmore college in upstate new york um and uh loved it i uh i rode i not on a horse in a boat mm-hmm. people get confused by that <laughs> so i was a collegiate athlete i was in student government i i sang in an acapella group i mean there was just like all these things and i school was great it was super fun and in between like summers of like summer camp counseling, which I was like, this is great. Um, or like working on a sports team. I worked in the equipment room during the school year. Um, the summer before my senior year of college, I was a teaching fellow mm-hmm. in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So my parents had moved from the UK mm-hmm. to New Mexico, uh, to Santa Fe, small town, 75,000 people, I think. Um, in the mountains of New Mexico, and I didn't know anybody, and I hated my parents for making this move, because I don't, it's just, like, Santa Fe is the city different, it's adobe houses, it's, like, steeped in, like, culture and heritage, and I was ignorant to all of that, I was like, this is a terrible one-horse town. Oh, wow. Because I'm coming from London, so my my perspective was so off. And so I applied for a teaching job, because I was sick and tired of having no friends, mm-hmm. not enjoying where I lived, and being angry at my parents. Mm-hmm. I figured I should probably do something in Santa Fe to try and see if I could fall in love mm-hmm. with the place. Um, and I did. I fell in love with teaching. I fell in love with kids. I met my now husband, then boyfriend, that summer. Yeah. Um, the, the, it, was just, it was just this incredible summer and completely eye-opening. And I had seen sort of... I had seen inequities... Um, not inequities that I felt like at the time were really pressing. So as a woman, as a woman athlete on a, on a sport that wasn't really popular, seeing how much equipment the hockey team got, yeah. I was like, this is whack. Like, and some of my best friends from school were part of a student opportunity program. Um, and like very, very early conversations with them. I was, I literally remember having this conversation, really good friend of mine. I was like, why are you on campus early for pre-orientation? The opportunity program. Um, and he was like, well, you know, as like students who come from like, we're all first gen, we all come from like the Bronx, Brooklyn, like this is this outreach, like it's important for us to be together and like find these communities and these networks mm-hmm. before this place becomes 
really impossibly hard for us to navigate. Yeah. And I literally was like, there's this thing called the American dream. <laughs> I'm like fresh right. out, coming from the UK. Right, yeah. This is what you get sold. Yeah. You don't the na narratives about how we systemically diminish, reduce, criminalize the existence, the identity, even the like the breathing space mm -hmm. for Black and Brown bodies in higher education sec across the whole country. But in higher education, I think it's you can see it really maybe more clearly mm -hmm. than in other places. Um, and so that 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 had kind of been sprinkled in along my journey. But teaching that summer. Um, all kids who are on a side of town that like there is there's a road and there's yeah. like one side of town that people go to and like yep. you're from one side of town yeah and so that just like my whole world exploded mm -hmm. from that summer um, and began this love affair of of not of not only teaching but how can I be like the best warrior in this work for my community wherever my community may be um, so that led me to teaching in Houston for two years with Teach for America which I have feelings about, which we don't need to go into. Okay, all right. We'll, 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 we'll cut. We we'll can cut if that. we need to. We don't have to, you know what I mean? No, it's this fine. This is your show. Um, two years in Houston, teaching history. Um, moved to L.A. and was part of a founding team to found a school. We opened a school. Awesome experience, incredible. Um, and then why I'm here now, I got burnt out. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll get that in a second. And that's it. There's the cliffhanger. We'll get to that in a second. So how, talk to me about your teaching experience in the yeah. classroom. How did you enjoy being in the classroom? What kind of challenges did you run into? What kind of experience did you have to kind of make you recognize this profession as something that can yeah. be as impactful or as powerful as it is? So for me, teaching is just this incredibly powerful duality. On the one hand, you are incredibly significant. Mm -hmm. Um, for to to children, to families, to a community, um, for knowledge in general, and the passing of like our culture and our values and our intellect on, um, and on the other hand, you're completely ill-equipped and inadequate. Mm -hmm. And how can you grapple with being of such significance and so poorly prepared to to be that significant? Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a that's a, a mental place that I think it's hard for people to live in, um, because it's 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 essentially like confronting your own mortality, but daily, because of the thousands of decisions that you make, you you can make great ones and terrible ones and everything on this continuum, and you're daily confronted by that inadequacy, yeah. and so it takes a certain um, type of self awareness and understanding to live in that inadequacy and still be authentically you and build relationships and do a, a damn good job. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard. Mm -hmm. um, for me, teaching is, t I mean, fundamentally teaching is about relationship. Yeah. Um, something that I didn't understand, I don't know if any of us understood when we were early in our career. I think we kind of had an, in there's an int intuition that it is, um, but it's so, when you're when you're early in the trenches, right? When you're like crying in the bathroom, at like and like taking a nap during your prep period, because we've all done that. Yeah. You are just trying to stay alive. Yeah. And it becomes so about you. Um, and if you stay in it long enough, you get beyond that place of of it being about you. You can get to the place where you confront your own inadequacy daily and realize 
that that is insignificant in comparison to the challenge that you have ahead, which is to educate wholly the tiny human that's in front mm -hmm. of you. So you're you talking about educating the human that's in front of you, teaching history and teaching a subject that is rife with ina uh, uh, inaccuracies. Yep. Um, something that is is very whitewashed when yeah. it comes down to it. How did you reconcile being able to teach history based on what you knew they needed to know yeah. as well as in, in opposition to what the curriculum might mm -hmm. say they should know as well? And as in, in that vein, having an international perspective mm -hmm. you bring to the classroom, how did those things work within one another? Yeah, um, I would say that the first couple of years that I even tried to run through like the curriculum capital C, right. I was not questioning the way that I should have. Mm -hmm. um, there were times that I was, again, I wasn't aware of a thing, aware of the importance beyond myself mm -hmm. to be able to be like, well, okay, so the textbook and like, t so this is Texas, right? So the textbook and like the questions all about um, the South secession, about the Civil War, all painted as a, as a states rights issue, right? We hear this all over. Um, and of course, the, that sentence is incomplete. A state's rights issue about a right to own <laughs> other people. Right. But we tend to forget that there's an end of that sentence. Yeah. And so the idea that I had to teach that it was a state's rights issue and ignore the end of that sentence because, you know, and there's that decision, right? Do you... Do you ignore the end of that sentence because this is actually what our kids are going to be tested on? Mm. But by ignoring that end of the sentence, you dehumanize and invalidate the bodies, like every single body that's sitting in front of you because you're delegitimizing their history. And so that's, that's the, the hard thing to fight while you're also drowning in your own self-doubt and crying in the restroom and sleeping through your prep period. So... Do we always get it right in the first year? No, I remember, like, not at all. And I don't think we always get it right, like, years down the way. Right. I think the the place that I got to that when I was my best self and my most authentic self as an ally was to say, here's what, like, the curriculum capital C says about the history capital H. Right. Here's what it actually is. Mm -hmm. You need to know both, mm -hmm. and to ignore either is to ignore is to ignore the 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 essence of what we're talking about, and so I think that was something that took me a really long time to be able to say, um, and also took a really long time for my kids to to really get and to understand, because there was part of it, and this was the thing that was also that was simultaneously that was heartbreaking and like understandable all at the same time is that if you have a kid who's like, hey, I just got to pass this test, man. Yeah. Like, just teach me the stuff so I can right. pass the test. I'm like, so you, like, we've, the, the toxicity of bias mm -hmm. and, and systemic racism that we breathe has taught you that you don't need to know this piece of your history because to get by, you just need to just know pass to pass the test. Yeah. And that's the that's the piece that I never got to be able to to crack with kids. I, th I don't. Um, I think that's easy. I think it's it's easier said than done to be able to break through that particular mindset. I, I agree with you 100. percent Your first year, two years as a teacher, 
a lot of times we're just trying to get by. We're trying to not rock the boat so much with our new bosses. We're in a new setting. And so in a lot of ways, we don't want to deviate too much from what's given to us because that's what's given to us in order. Because how else do we judge teachers' success nowadays except for how they performed on the yeah. test or how their students performed on the test? And so I think that there's a lot of agency that has to grow within yourself as an educator. Mm -hmm. And it takes time to get to that point where you say, okay, I can do both. Yeah. I can prepare you for this test, but I can also put some truth in your yeah. life too. And and it's it's tough. It's tough because a lot of kids, they just want to be able to pass a test because of the system has made that the priority as opposed to learning about themselves. So I agree 100%. Yeah, it's really hard. So, yeah, that was that was a big that was a big piece. And, and it, I mean, yeah, still grappling with it. And you, you've talked about that and it, you, you said you got burnt out. I imagine that was a, 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 a factor in, in some of the burnout that you yeah. might have had. If you were willing to talk about some of the other things that burned you out. Yeah. Talk about that and then talk about what led you to apply here yeah. and come to the school. Um, so I think I got. Um, the, the the primary reason was really that that sort of mental struggle like how do you how do you be really successful and teach a whole child mm. um i got tired of the every day um i got tired of the busy work um i got tired of the lack of support um i got tired of feeling like i needed to be a teacher and a mother and a nurse and a coach and a cheerleader mm -hmm. and a, a and all these other things that those of us who've been in the profession when we see the word teacher we know that that means seven other job right. descriptions minimum yeah um i got tired of seeing kids that i loved um poisoned by the system and i got tired of writing really amazing lesson plans to have them either sort of dinged for not having this perfect objective or I didn't write the objective on the whiteboard when I when this round this round was coming while I was you know killing the game right just like all those nitty gritty things that like nitpicky things that can kind of get you down um, you know I maintained that the hardest part for me was the better you get at teaching, the more people don't want you to teach. And that was really hard for me to see where my future was going if I couldn't be in classrooms with kids, mm -hmm. learning with them every day. Because kids are the best things in the world. Yeah. Adults can suck. Yeah. And most of them do. <laughs> but children are wonderful. Right. And But the better you get, the further away you get from kids. And so trying to figure out how I could sustain myself and get better and continue to grow in the profession when I was getting pushed and pulled in these certain directions was hard. Mm -hmm. It was really hard. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to see, maybe, I, I, and I think we have this view of teachers. We as teachers have this view that we're constantly, that we're just puppets and that our administration is pulling on one string and the state's pulling on another and blah, blah, blah. But how much do we really know about who's got the control? Yeah. I certainly feel like I didn't. Mm -hmm. And coming here, I think that I've been my mind has um, been opened to the many, many, many layers to those strings. Um, and, and I think I've got a deeper appreciation and an understanding of what we had to do as teachers. But I also think that it, it's given me perspective to see 
um, some of the bigger things that are really like the bigger agents that are moving that I think it was hard to see yeah. when you're so close to what's going on. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that I like one or the other and it doesn't mean that I know exactly what of the bigger things that I think are moving out there in like the shadows yeah. are because I do think they're moving in the shadows. <laughs> um, but that's what, what brought me here. The combination of being burnt out and wanting to see if I could understand who or what was really dictating my life in ways that I hadn't really understood before. I think that's, I think the low key, I think more often than not, I think people have given themselves this perspective coming to this program, especially education policy, where, oh, I want to affect policy. Yeah. But I think a lot of people haven't admitted to themselves and didn't, didn't understand education policy pretty much at all before we stepped foot on this campus. Yeah. They, have, they might have an understanding of politics, might have an understanding of political systems, yeah. but education policy. You talk about the strings or whatnot. I think about, you know, I've got strings, but now I'm free. Yep. I've got, I've yeah, got no strings, strings on, on me. me. Yeah. So, like, the idea of, of, of hopefully being able to understand those mechanisms in order mm -hmm. to separate ourselves from those mechanisms. What are some of the challenges that you've had while you've been here? Some of the things that have, yeah. have frustrated you? We've had this conversation before. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but, but now, I, I would like for you to express some of the things that have frustrated you. Yeah. Um, I think I was frustrated um, by that I got caught and I drank the Kool-Aid on the grandioseness of this institution. Um, that, which is a very selfish reason for being frustrated. But I'm like, man, I got duped. Yeah. <laughs> um, because there's this, there's this perception of what this place is and what it's going to be like. Um, and then you get here and it's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. um, so you think of Harvard as sort of this place that is uh, cutting edge, academically, um, socially, it's innovative, it's on the front line. You know, people making great change have this university's name attached to them. Um, and so you expect some sort of, uh, some level of awareness and forward thinking that goes along with that. Um, and you get here and you realize that the institution has protected itself from this change by doubling down on its privilege and it's systemic injustices, and it's racism, and it's sexism, and it's classism, to the point that it's almost impenetrable. Mm -hmm. The idea that I could say something like, I think it's really inappropriate that we're continuing to read authors that are all white men. Yeah. In a class being taught by a white man. Yeah. And it's 2018. Yeah. And all these professors who wrote all these things, they're probably incredibly smart. But you're telling me that this is the only guy who's written on the, flexi the flexibility of the US Supreme Court and whether or not it's active, fixed, or flexible? Mm -hmm. And who has had access to write about that by coming through an institution <laughs> like this and sitting in a classroom yeah. with people who double down on that idea and protect that privilege? Yeah. That's scary to me mm -hmm. and really and deeply frustrating. Um, because I think when, you know, you want to sell people on this idea of what this can do. And listen, I can't deny that people are going to look at a resume and not go, oh, Harvard. Right. That's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But then I think the onus then is on all of us to say, yeah, I, I learned a lot of things. I'm grateful for my time here. 
But I also felt that this institution was wholly incapable of looking in the mirror mm -hmm. and addressing its own privilege mm -hmm. and addressing the ways that we include or exclude certain people mm -hmm. or how we talk about people. Right. And that, I think, is really, that's a big piece there. You've got to be very honest about everything. Every institution that you're in or you're involved in, if you're not honest about the faults that they have, then you will... You, you'll never be able to have a clear picture of what your experience was. Harvard is is a shining city on a hill in a lot of ways. Yeah. And and I think that being here has definitely opened my eyes to some things I never would have experienced before. But also recognize there's a lot of problems in this area, a lot of problems in this institution. And I think that it's, it's refreshing sometimes to hear people being willing to express that. I also think that I'm not invalidating anybody who is pie in the sky, 100% positive about their experience. But when I say what I'm about to say, I'm saying this because I think this is just human nature. It is very hard to have made a choice to come somewhere to spend the money that you chose that you chose to spend to come here mm -hmm. and be very critical of it because then in the, you are saying to yourself, I am not getting everything that I wanted to get yep. out of it. But I think we have to do that yeah. because there's going to be classes that come after us and classes that come after them that have to be prepared for what they're going into. And the university as a whole has to change in and of itself in order to do better for them than it did for us. Or I hear plenty of horror stories, maybe not horror stories, but negative stories about other classes in the past who mm -hmm. might not have had the same voice that we've been able to express while we've been here. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm yeah. absolutely with you there. Now, Libby, you have so much to say that is is positive and impactful and important. And you talked about how education burns you out in the classroom. Yeah. What's next? If you have to choose yeah. an idea of the type of jobs or type of things that you'd want to do next, what would they be? Oh, gosh, that's the million-dollar question. That is something I wish I could pay somebody to figure <laughs> out for me. Um, I think it's, it, and it's job season, so I really should have a better answer. Right, yeah. <laughs> And I don't. Right. <laughs> um, I'm same here. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Okay. I'm <laughs> so we're just gonna be poor. Right. <laughs> no job. Right. Out on student loans. <laughs> um, I think that. I think I have. I think I have to decide for me. I see that my career sort of in in chunks. There is no such thing as like this one career anymore. Um, I think for me, where I am right now, um, I have to be really conscious of. What, what is probably going to be an eight-year stint in my mm -hmm. career, and then what it might be the career that comes after that. Mm -hmm. um, for me, in the next eight years, Adam, my husband, and I will have, hopefully, a couple of children. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, that informs my thinking. Oh, yeah. Um, and informs his thinking. Um, and so I think about things like, do I want to go and lead a school? Mm-hmm. What would it look like to go and lead a school if I have two children under the age of four? Yeah. How feasible would that be? Mm -hmm. Is a school the right place that I feel like I can um, make improvements, can, that I can contribute, that I can lead a life that I'm both happy with and proud of? Because I think two of them are very important. Um, do I like abandon schools in the institution as they are and look at supporting college access yeah. because I really care about, I don't want to get another text message from my highest flying kids who I would like literally try to write in on the ballot for president two years ago <laughs> instead of 
cheese, Cheeto in chief. Um, <laughs> because he was just that brilliant. I don't want to get another text message about how he's struggling at a boarding school that he's at. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't feel affirmed, valued, smart enough. Because people are asking him questions about where he's from. Yeah. Um, do I go and work in like state government and think about like the one of the biggest or or federal government one of the biggest e easiest it would be hard but one of the quickest fixes I think that we could really look at from like a federal level is changing the Title One formula. Yeah. Um, do I take my passion there? And so I think as all of this swells right and everybody gets into the you know last week we had friends who went off and interviewed for jobs. And I'm sitting there being like, oh, I've got drafts of my cover letters, but I haven't applied to anything. <laughs> right. But you're out here in the third round of an interview? Yeah. What are, I've been asleep on the job. <laughs> um, so as that pressure starts to build, we tend to, I think, I tend to get into this, okay, I'll just find a job, right? Yeah. Instead of a job that fulfills me and I'm proud of. Um, so I don't have an answer of like the what's next thing. I cannot deny that there's a burning passion to lead a school that hopes to address some of the things that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Like, could I lead a school where I'm like a number one teacher champion, mm -hmm. where I didn't really care about uh, objectives being written on whiteboards, <laughs> where my kids can walk into classrooms that say slave owners underneath the former presidents right. and feel like who they are is valued and valuable mm -hmm. and prepare them to be resilient when they go out into a world that tells them that they're not. Yeah. Can I do that while also being a wife and a potential mother in the future and a sister and a daughter? And, and can I do all of that and still, like, sleep? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, right. Um, so I think, like, that's really exciting and that's mm -hmm. also terrifying all at the same time. Oh, yeah, I, I think I think you're, you're right. And I think you have a lot more concerns than, than some of us others don't. You have concerns that others of us don't. Yeah. Um, you know, you and Adam, the first man, uh, y'all have, <laughs> y'all have, y'all have, y'all have a lot of things ahead of you to consider, and as well as career paths and stuff too. So, uh, I think that in a lot of ways, when this question's asked, I think that I don't. I wish I had an answer, and yeah. I wish I had a specific job that I could go back to. Well, I do have a job I can go back to. I know you're probably listening to this, Doctor Argent. We'll talk about my job prospect in about a month. Yo, hire this man. <laughs> but, but we'll see what happens. But I, I, I do think that that's, that's multi-layered. And mm -hmm. on February 2nd, 2018, it's getting closer and closer. Groundhog Day. And speaking of Groundhog Day, transition time. Puxitani, Phil. Tell us, tell us about Phil. You, you want to talk about Phil, but you want to talk about Phil from the frame of climate change. Well, yeah, isn't it just fascinating that we can get all excited about a little groundhog coming out and the pageantry of that. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, that's as ridiculous as saying that climate change, the whole thing blows my mind. <laughs> We're waiting on a rodent to tell us whether or not it's going to snow yeah. for another six weeks when it was like 60 degrees last week. Like, why are we waiting on a rodent to tell us what's going on? <laughs> Just wake up! <laughs> Phil doesn't know. Phil does not know. Phil can't even see his own shadow. <laughs> right. To know right. that it to go right. back in the hole. No it's just insane. But, yo, every single Groundhog Day, people are like, Puxitani! Yeah. Phil! Yeah. He saw his shadow! <laughs> or not. 
He did see his shadow this year, apparently. What is it? I always forget what that means. So that means that six more months of six more weeks of winter. Oh man, that's depressing. <laughs> that's absolutely depressing. <laughs> oh, I was looking forward to the weather being kind of like how it is or was the other day. Yeah. Oh well. So I just I think it's so interesting. We we come up with all of these traditions that mask reality yeah. and they're coping mechanisms. We know that from psychology. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just fascinating to me mm -hmm. that we're waiting on a we're waiting we're waiting on the tradition of a rodent telling us whether or not winter is going to come around because we can't wake up and see what climate change right. is doing to the world. They're halfway adjust, but like people are more apt to believe what Phil says than they are what the majority, the clear majority. Of scientists say about there's literally like one holdout right now. Right, seriously. Like literally, there's one scientist, and I think that person's on the way to caving because they're just <laughs> tired of being called an idiot. Yeah. Um. I just, it's amazing, but the yeah, and I just, I love how we, I love and loathe how we create these traditions and these myths. I mean, this is a Germanic tradition, um, based. I mean, Germanic mythology and all the rest mm -hmm. of it, but um. So we've been doing this forever, and, and we continue to do this. But the idea that like we're waiting, we get we're getting all excited about a rodent to tell us whether yeah. or not winter's going to continue. Yeah. I mean, it will snow in April. Right. But it didn't snow here until December. The world <laughs> is changing. Right. Things are changing, and you would think that our politicians would rather be safe than sorry when they create policy regarding these things. Even if you don't believe in your heart of heart and your soul of souls that climate change exists. Wouldn't you rather be safe than sorry in creating policy related to it? A hundred percent. But also, wouldn't you rather... I mean, I think the, the tired argument is that if we don't continue to keep up as an industrialized nation with the level of gases that we're producing, which are by and large from massive um, urbanization, right? So yeah. you think about, like, um, factory production, you think about cars, you think about who has access to cars, how, how much we're consuming and using fossil fuels... And the, the, the tired argument that in order for us to be economically competitive, mm -hmm. we cannot cap our greenhouse gas emissions. That is just trash. It was trash, yeah. That is trash. That is, a tired, that is a tired argument that is playing on the general population's lack of understanding of how our economy works mm -hmm. and functions. And a lazy attempt at... at making a scapegoat, like making the economy a scapegoat for the for an environmental crisis. Right. I mean, we have the brain power, the intuition, the technology to not be dependent on fossil fuels. Yeah. We don't need to be so stupid as to <laughs> drill in one of the remaining nature reserves with some what, some remaining, like, what if the cure for cancer is in the Alaska nature reserve that Cheeto in chief just said that we can go drill through? <laughs> Leaving aside the fact that you're drilling through indigenous people's sacred water, through land that we have stolen, we as white people have stolen, and you're prioritizing your economic quote-unquote needs above the needs of anybody else who happen to look different from you. Yeah, It's bogus, yeah. but we fall for it every time. Well, it's similar to when uh, the discussion of fracking and... The, the president, my, it's funny you say Cheeto in chief, my friend Greg. I just kind of say his name. It's funny, my friend Greg calls him the papaya potus uh, on, his, <laughs> on his show, which is uh, called uh, Fiskamal, by the way. Greg was an inspiration for this podcast. But anyways, um, the president chose not to, is, is choosing not to frack in Florida because Florida has a Republican governor that's 
planning to run for Senate and they need Senate seats in order to pass whatever ridiculous agenda that they want to pass in the future. Um, and I think the politics of it, the special interests involved, is the part that's most frustrating and disgusting about all of this. And, and it, going back to education real quickly, that's the frustrating part in education. Yep. The one place where politics should not play a role. Uh, but education role. is inherently political. Ed education is inherently political. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> so musings on what? Yeah. Um, so the world we're dealing with this around the world. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I think it's funny because we just had a merger between Disney and and Fox and. One of the jokes on one of the show I watch all the time is they believe that one day one studio will run the entire studio system, oh and it'll goodness. every four times a year there will be a movie called just movie, and it'll be all the characters from every movie you love in one film at one time. <laughs> Another place that's that's being that's in the process of taking over the world, yeah, is Monopoly. Amazon. Yeah, monopolies. How do you feel about Amazon's? Because uh, I remember you remember Amazon was just books. I remember Amazon was just. I remember that books. Oh, I got a, I got like Harry Potter three <laughs> on Amazon. Yeah, Prisoner Basketball. Definitely, good job. I'm proud of you. So, it's been real talk. That's movie trivia knowledge, not book knowledge. That is pure oh, movie trivia. Oh, James, you break my heart. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I remember getting that delivery, and that was a book. And I remember, I mean. Nobody could have foreseen what had happened, what was going to happen. Maybe Jeff Bezos, because he could see into the future. Um, I think it's so interesting when we think about the way the the tendency, the organizational tendency to monopolize. And inherently, we know that that is bad for the consumer. Without competitors, we know what happens to consumer experience, to prices. But I got to tell you, if I, I'm thinking, I looked at my Amazon thing, I'm really going to out myself here. I think, and granted we did move in the last six months, so maybe I'm making excuses. <laughs> but Amazon, I have, I have made 84 individual Amazon purchases mm -hmm. in the last six months. Mm -hmm. I looked that up before <laughs> I came here today, and I'm fully outing myself. And if I go back and look in that order history... That's stuff that I can buy in stores. Yeah. I just didn't want to get off my couch. Yeah. Because it arrived at my door two days later. Yeah. Hanukkah candles. <laughs> sugar. <laughs> blueberries from my dog. Yeah. A dog toy. Yeah. A comb. Makeup remover. Moisturizer. A drying rack. All of this is stuff that I bought on Amazon. Right. That arrived in a cardboard box. Mm -hmm. That polluted the environment to get it to me in two days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 84 individual purchases. Our bed. We just had to move because mm -hmm. that pipe in our apartment, we had a pipe burst. Hashtag bomb cycling. <laughs> Hashtag environmental thing. But Amazon. Yeah. And so, but at the same time, this HQ2 that's going on, I have a friend who lives in Detroit and we were talking the other day, which is what prompted me and of course the Atlantic's article on this really kind of I think he's in on, on far more articulate points than I can make. The All of the cities that are in the running, bar a couple of them, are success, have levels of success where they don't really need, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, an Amazon HQ2. And yet, when I think about Detroit or 
Pittsburgh or Austin, would HQ2 just ruin those towns? Yeah. Detroit is, is rebuilding. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful city. And it doesn't, like, it's fine on its own. It doesn't need Amazon to come in with 15,000 people driving up housing prices in areas in areas that are highly segregated. Yeah. And we don't, we don't need more gentrification. Right. That's what that's going to do. Yeah. And at the same time, it is a behemoth of an industry that, I mean, it's almost second nature now. If mm-hmm. we're sitting at home and I need something, I'm like, oh, I can just get it on Amazon. That's changed the way I think about shopping. Yeah. And so how do you... How do you recognize that change, recognize it in yourself, see it for the benefits that it can have and the significant drawbacks and push back against this behemoth of a machine that just bought Whole Foods? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's everywhere. And so I think about HQ2 and I'm like, Detroit doesn't need this. Yeah. Would this really help? Mm. Yes, that would be, like, it would stimulate the local economy. Yes, it would bring people and, and minds to the city. But you know what Detroit already has? Great minds in the city. Yeah. It doesn't need an outsider to come in and fix it. Then we're going back to this white savior kind of a mentality. Yeah. And that's obviously problematic. Right. We do look at things on the surface level of it's going to bring jobs. And we don't think about the consequences of what it means to have such a large organization come into it. What's place. it going to do? I mean, when, thinking about Detroit, and we looked at this in class last semester. I mean, if you look at Detroit public schools and where kids are being yeah. educated... Where are the people coming in to work to Amazon going to send their kids? Are they going to send them to Detroit public schools? Not at all. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, if they had to, yeah. that could maybe change the game. Right, but they're not going to. But they're to not going to. Because they have the option not to. Because so you're going to continue to yeah. reinforce the the segregation of resources, mm-hmm. funding, teachers, like the whole thing. Yeah, and you pointed out the point of gentrification. That is going to happen. That is, that without is, a doubt. Without a doubt, that is going to happen. It's funny because Amazon... HQ2 is, at, at least as far as I know on this date, is looking at my sort of hometown, Raleigh, North Carolina, as an option as well. Yeah. Raleigh already has uh, RDU. It has this, uh, or not RDU, it has the Research Triangle Park or whatnot. So it's this area where they already have growing businesses um, that are, are already doing a good job. Well, and with Duke to, to and UNC, I mean, UCL. that's just... They're all there. Yeah. They're all there. Um, so it's very interesting to see what Amazon is doing. And I say this as a person who is a frequent customer of Amazon Fresh because I don't want to ride on the bus to pick up my groceries and it just comes to my door. But yeah. you do have to think about what does that do? What are the consequences of what we're doing here? Yeah, or, so I can get a... We, the earliest you can get a fresh delivery in Cambridge right now is 4 a.m. Yeah. The, like, my frozen blueberries don't just get off a shelf and walk <laughs> themselves into my yeah. fresh cart that yeah. then walks itself to my door. Right. That means somebody's working at 2 a.m. to yeah. put my frozen blueberries in my fresh bag yeah. to walk it to my door. Yeah. And at a click of a button, that doesn't cost me any more than right. somebody working through the night. And, of course, you can, you, can be, uh, you can be more conservative in your economic analysis and say, like, Look at the look at the jobs. Look at the look at the revenue. Look at I mean, even Bezos as an individual donating money for scholarships for DACA recipients. His first political move, nonetheless, yeah. um, he's remained incredibly apolitical, which mm-hmm. I think is probably you could maybe theorize one of the reasons why Amazon has been able to be so successful because he's right. stayed out of that fray. Now, of course, the flip side of that argument is that it's immoral for him not to have intervened mm-hmm. um, on a number of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transgender bathroom rule in North Carolina, right. uh, obviously DACA, obviously literally anything that 45 says, <laughs> with all of that purchasing power. 
Um, but you you have to wonder. You really have to wonder. And yet we've become so accustomed to this. Yeah. And so if this is the new normal, I I fear that we I fear that we walk down a path where not only do we expect this to happen, but we get entitled when it doesn't. Yeah. And we start to forget that there are real people that have to do things that make it so that we can get frozen blueberries mm -hmm. on our doorstep at 4 a.m. at any time of the year mm -hmm. and at any time of the day. Mm -hmm. And that's how, that's something that I, I'm fearful of, um, that the next generation will grow up with that being the new norm. Yeah. yeah. Because when we grew up, we had to go grocery shopping with our parents. Yeah. That was a real thing that we had to right. do. That was every Saturday morning. Yeah. That was me, my mom, my sister. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I wonder about that. Yeah, I, I think the, the idea of progress forgets that progress doesn't always mean good. Progress for everyone. Yeah, doesn't always mean progress for everyone. So yeah. let me ask you this. Uh, we are going to get to your recommendations. We are getting close to time here. Give us a recommendation to our audience. Tell us what something that you think they should watch, see, read, etc. something that they should check out. So I've got three. Okay. Boom. Um, I'm going to forget the name of the other one because I just started reading it. <laughs> all right, that's all right. Um, okay, so my nonfiction read it because you need to read it is Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, We Were Eight Years in Power, mm -hmm. um, a collection of his essays that he wrote during Obama's presidency mm -hmm. um, for The Atlantic. A, all of them written with a preface to, to quantify or qualify them to sort of like writing from now in 27 well it was then 2017 uh but back and like reflecting yeah. like this is what happened right um and to note that interestingly enough uh professor at this university famous cornell west um is is actually challenged tanahasi coates on his uh his yeah. writings in that book so not taking a side here uh, because i want people to check that out on their own but it'd be interesting to try to see where their perspectives lie on mm -hmm. these two issues um my podcast is speaks to the history the history teacher in me. Uh, it's called the Dollop. Uh, Garth Reynolds and oh, the other guy Dave. I don't know his last name. <laughs> My good friend Dave. Um, one of them researches a, a topic from history, or so for example, there's a three part series on um, the L.A. riots. Yeah. Um, but they're both comedians, so one of them researches it and then writes the story of like whatever happened to the tells it to the guy who doesn't know. Yeah. And they just sort of back and forth. So it's it's part comedy, part history, part storytelling, and it gets to the history and English teacher in okay. me, and it's just a little and man, they're funny. <laughs> um, and then a young adult book that I just got because as a history slash English teacher, <laughs> I still read YA novels. That's fine. Far from the tree. I just finished reading Turtles All the Way Down. Far From the Tree is my next on my list. Um, and was recommended to me by uh, my best teaching buddy, Katie Johnson, who is the best English teacher in the world. Um, <laughs> shout out to Katie Johnson. Shout out to Katie, who's teaching right now. <laughs> Katie, you play this podcast. Katie! <laughs> uh, she's an incredible human. Uh, so Far From the Tree is the next. Uh, we just finished reading... Uh, we read The Hate You Give in this like sort of book club that we read together. So, Well, my recommendation, those are very good. My recommendation is talking about history is a show called Drunk History. Uh, oh, Drunk my God, I love that show so much. <laughs> Drunk History is hilarious. We should, You know, we should actually do that. Like, yes, we should, we should. We should actually do that. We should. 
That'd be a lot of fun. Done. We gotta do it. So sold. So if you don't know anything about drunk history, Derek Waters is the creator. He basically goes and finds comedians and celebrities, um, and they have a story, so usually a little-known story from history that people don't really recognize. He has them get very intoxicated and just tell the story. And they have actors and actresses portray the story being told, but they're mouthing the words just as the drunk person is telling the story. So it's hard to describe, I think, without the visuals of it, but please check out Drunk History. I'm not ashamed to say that I showed my seniors a couple of episodes because they can handle it. They they understand what it is. And I had tenure, so what they're going to do is stop me. I might, might cut this out of the episode if, just in case. But anyways, uh, uh, to close us out, uh, Libby, if you could, would you make it plain for our audience? Give us a quote something that an anecdote something that means something to you and make it plain make it under, make the audience understand why it's important so in this season of job hiring and uh, the inevitable disappointment that will come <laughs> with the sting of rejection letters that we will all eventually get <laughs> take 24 hours to be disappointed suck it up and get back in the game because only badasses can sideline themselves no one can sideline you all right. If you're a badass. All right. It's kind of a synthesis of things from my mom. She believes that you're allowed to have your time to lick your wounds. Mm-hmm. If you take longer than 24 hours, you're keeping yourself on the sideline. And that's your own goddamn fault. <laughs> Good. I was looking forward to Libby cursing at some point in the show. So, <laughs> that was the cleanest the, show. It was clean. It was, it, was, it was cleaner than I expected. I was like, Libby's going to go in. I'm going to have to rate this episode TVMA. Like, I don't know. <laughs> But, no, Libby, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate talking to you all the time, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Absolutely.